Okay, today is April the 12th, 2012, and we're going to have a guest speaker on April the 22nd, is that right? No? 25th? 26th. April the 26th, uh, George Mueller from Germany is going to be here. So I hope you all make an effort to be here and hear what he has to say. Very interesting speaker. Yeah, well, um, he'll be here there too. If you all want to come on uh, the young people's class, that'll be fine uh, to get to hear him twice. Yes. Sie sprechen die Deutsch, das ist much better. Okay, let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, the option of rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word and for the opportunity to be here to study it. We pray that you will help us to focus and concentrate so that we'll be able to drink it in in full measure, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> I hope you have your thinking hats on because I'm going to make you think tonight. If there's anything that you don't understand, if it's a word or a phrase or a concept, let me know and I'll do my best to explain it to you. We're going to start with Isaiah chapter 55, verse 10 and 11, which is where we ended last time. You can see it up here on the notes if you'd like. There's one other thing I wanted to say about this before we left it. Isaiah 55:10, For as the rain cometh down and the snow from heaven and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth and maketh it to bring forth and bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Verse 11. So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent, I sent it. Now I gave the meaning of this verse from a perspective that sometimes you don't get. Most people read this and they understand that God's Word is alive and powerful and when it goes out to people, it can reach into the darkest soul and still redeem that person because it is alive and powerful. And it accomplishes what God intends, which is the salvation or the spiritual growth, the application of the word when it goes forth. And that's what it, mean, that's what it means several times, most of the time maybe. But we're looking at it from a different perspective. We're looking at it from the perspective because we've been talking about giving the gospel. And just before this, I said there's a time where you need to realize that this person is not positive, they're negative, and there's a time just to be silent. There's a time to move on maybe fight another day or give a chance to someone else. We don't beg. We don't cajole. We don't try to coerce. We just give them the information and the Holy Spirit is the one that convicts anyway. So what I wanted to explain, and which I did last time, is the other side of the coin with regards to that verse. And if you see the notes down here, it will explain this. When you impart biblical truth to someone who rejects it, you have not failed, nor has God. Very important for us to realize that. Uh, sometimes you go away and you feel rejected. And you feel like you failed. But that is not the case. Because according to this verse, when God's Word goes out from His mouth, it always is going to accomplish that which He pleases and it's going to prosper where into the thing that He sent it. God, God has uh, accomplished something in you because His Word has prospered you. In other words, 
it has accomplished something in you, and that is spiritual growth. And so when you go out and you give the gospel or you impart biblical truth to someone and they reject it, it doesn't mean that what God had intended did not occur or that he failed in accomplishing something. The fact is that you are out there on the front lines disseminating biblical truth means that he has already accomplished something in you. And he hasn't failed because he's going to prosper. He's going to prosper you because of what his word has done in you. You see that? So it doesn't matter where the person accepts the gospel, that's all the better. But even if they reject it or they reject the biblical truth, what God had accomplished is evident because you were there giving the, disseminating the word, which we are required to do. And when we do it, this is pleasing to God and he prospers us. So I just thought I would tack that on a little bit because it can go both ways. When they accept the biblical teaching, that's for the good even when they don't. God's word did not go out void. All right, now we're going to start something new this evening with regards to getting the the gospel right. We use the word of God as our guidebook as our directive we look to it for truth because it is truth and all of our decisions and our actions and our thoughts everything that is about us has to do with the bible and when we talk to other people about jesus christ about god about doctrine we are always using the bible and today the bible is not very popular nor will you be if you use the Bible. And that's all the more better as far as I'm concerned. I have a friend that keeps reminding me, the fun is where the giants are. And so when you start talking about the Bible, you're going to find very quickly that people are not too fond of talking about the Bible unless they are criticizing it or condemning it. So we can expect attacks on us personally, And upon the Bible, whenever you say something dogmatically and then you use the reference point as the Bible, then trouble starts. We can expect it. It's always been that way. I'm going to start with a quote. This is the last quote that we had last time. Any person of ordinary intelligence anywhere at any time can know that God exists as the creator of the universe. Psalm 19, 1 through 6 and Romans 1, 18 through 20. And since you were here last Sunday, uh, excuse me, last uh, Tuesday, you know already exactly what that's talking about. Psalms 19, 1 through 6 is God's revelation, revelation of himself in the what? In the stars, in the heavenly bodies. Romans 1, 18 through 20, we know that every person does what? Yeah, knows there's a God. They know that God exists from creation. So we know all that, and then we go on to such a person also has a conscience in which God has written his moral law, Romans 2, 14 through 16. So people really know basically, morally, you might say, what's right and what's wrong. They know it's wrong to steal. They know it's wrong to lie. They know it's wrong to commit adultery and so forth because God has planted it into their souls. Now, such a person also has this conscience, and he knows that he or she has broken this law many times and realizes that there must be judgment from God as a result. I've told you about the uh, Kirk Cameron and his his friend. Anybody remember his friend's name? Y'all just don't, don't, uh, I don't know, we're not on the same wavelength because I've seen this guy a lot of times and his mind just slips me right now. It'll come to me when I'm driving home, I'm sure. Um... No, Kirk Cameron is on this show, and it's The Master's Way is the name of the program. And what they do, remember I explained it to you all recently, that they go up on the street, they go on the street with a microphone, and they ask people, they start talking about the, the Ten Commandments in the Bible, and they, uh, people admit that they are liars, that they are uh, thieves, 
that they are fornicators. And he says, with all that in mind, do you expect to be accepted by God? And it goes from there. Anyway, the whole idea, the reason I'm, I'm saying this is because they know it already. They know these things. They like to pretend that it doesn't matter and they like to avoid accountability. But they already know deep down that there is a problem and that they are sinners and they need salvation. When the gospel is preached, the sinner knows by the convicting power of the Holy Spirit that this is the truth and is the only means of escape from the wrath to come. Remember how Romans chapter 1, verse 18 started? For the wrath of God is revealed. That's what people try to avoid is God's wrath, so they just pretend He doesn't exist and so forth. There are, however, many persons who resist the witness of creation and conscience. We should be prepared to reason with them. God offers to all, come now and let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. So if you get out and about at all and you start talking about the gospel, the Bible, or anything else of a spiritual nature, and linking it to the Bible, then you can be assured that there are going to be those who are not going to agree and they're going to contend with you about these matters. And this says we should be prepared to reason with them. Reasoning with someone means that you have to talk to them. There has to, you, you have a dialogue with someone. It's not that you're on your soapbox or you're pulled behind your pulpit and you're preaching at them. And it doesn't mean that you argue with them. You just simply talk to them and reason with them. Now, the best way to get that started is to... Very good. Now, apologetics. I stumbled onto something today, and I spent nine hours studying this. Literally. I just broke half an hour for lunch. And I, there's this one particular theological journal that I was reading, and it was 50 pages long. And it read like what you would think if you were reading a legal document and it was like full of legalese it was like that only in a theological sense and so I sludged through that for nine hours to bring you what I have here I've just took the cream off and I've got these these quotes and I guess because uh, Carrie and I have been talking to an unbeliever that openly re uh, rejects Jesus Christ in the Bible that it really resonated with me because so much of what these, these paragraphs these, from this article is addressing is a person like that. And you're going to find people like that and you don't have to go that far to find them who reject. They'll come right out and say they reject Jesus Christ and they reject the gospel. Now, what do you do with people like that? That's the issue. Well, there's two mainline thoughts that I've gleaned out of these nine hours. And you'll see them develop as we go through this. But keep your thinking hat on. There is some, a bit of academic vocabulary in here. And if you get, get lost or you get kind of antsy, raise your hand, ask me a question, and I'll slow down or whatever. But it's very interesting what is presented here. I never even knew that this was an issue. As, as you'll see as it develops uh, until, until I read this. So, first we start with apologetics. What are apologetics? Actually, defending the Bible falls under the heading of apologetics. I'll give you the definition in this quote. By the way, it doesn't have anything to do with giving an apology. Apologetics generally has to do with the defense of truth claims of Christianity. And you should have a tremendous number of truth claims. You know what a truth claim is. Something the Bible says that you claim is true. The word apologetics comes from the, from the Greek apologia, a term from criminal law and the courts meaning to make a speech of defense a verbal defense, a reply to a formal charge, an answer, or a vindication. One of the complaints of the new evangelicals and one of the reasons for the break 
to a form of new evangel of a new evangelical coalition in the 1940s was fundamentals fundamentalism's alleged intellectual deficiency and inability. Now let me explain what what he's talking about. He explains it a little further, but I, let me just tell you, uh, give you a general idea of what is going down. In the 1940s, there were a group of evangelicals that got tired of people that would, evangelicals, Christians, that would talk to others and give them a proof text. Do you know what a proof text is? Does everybody know what a proof text is? Okay. A proof text is when you go to a verse, one verse to prove a whole doctrine. And they call it a proof text. You try to make a point with one text and you prove it with that text. And so there were a lot of people, a lot of Christians that would make their point by going to a proof text and then talking about their experiences. And it just wasn't working. It, it, it was, in fact, it was embarrassing to, to them. And so there's, there was this group of evangelicals that broke away and uh, because fundamentalism, which is just basic Christianity, they felt had an intellectual deficiency and inability because that's, that's not the way to address issues biblically is by giving one verse, a proof text, and then start talking about your experiences. And that's what was going on. They didn't like it, so they broke away. This dissatisfaction eventually led to the formation of the Fuller Theological Seminary in 1947. By the way, that happened to be a very good year. One purpose of... <laughs> One purpose of which was to create an academic center and think tank for evangelical apologetics and philosophy of religion. So this group that broke away from the fundamental, the basic mode of Christianity was going to create an academic center. In other words, they were going to try to be more theologically academically on target when they approached others with regards to the Bible. The new evangelicals were annoyed with what appeared to them to be evangel evangel evangelism excuse me, carried on by proof texting and narrations of personal experiences. This was no way, in their opinion, to make truth claims of Christianity intellectually respectable and to penetrate the culture for Christ. Isn't that what we want to do? In other words, if you're going to go into a fallen, sin-sick culture with just one verse and your experiences, it's not going to do much. It's not going to resonate. It's not going to make a ripple on the pond. They were concerned about that, so that's why they had this fuller, theological seminary and they were trying to um, have Christians be more intellectually respectable so that they could change the culture or at least inform the culture. At the center of any defense and propagation of truth claims of Christianity stands the matter of ultimate and absolute authority, an authority for which no greater authorization can be given. Now he's playing the authority card, as we'll see. The leaders of the new evangel evangelicalism in 50 years have abandoned the sense of absolute and infallible religious authority, and today the evangelical movement is groping to find some kind of a basis or an authority to meet a rootless, non-absolutist, relative, rel uh, relativist, culture on the culture's own terms with the claims of the living and true God. Now, wh what he's saying is that he thinks that this new group, and it took me 40 pages to finally figure this out, he thinks this new group was really not on target when it removed itself from the mainline evangelicals in order to really make a difference in getting to unbelievers because 
they're going to use evidence. They're going to use facts in order to persuade unbelievers that what they are saying about the Bible is true and indeed it can be uh, their guide as well. And notice some of the words. He says, uh, absolutists. What comes to mind when it says they were... They tried to find some kind of basis or authority to meet a rootless, non-absolutist. What word comes to mind that I taught you that would be a synonym for non-absolutist? Yeah, but I taught you. I came back from a conference and I showed you what it was. Postmodernism. Remember? Postmodernism is a non-absolutist because the hallmark of, uh, of an absolute, of a, excuse me, of a postmodern is that you can't know anything for sure. There are no absolutes. And that's the kind of culture. Relative, relativist culture, and that's what goes along with non-absolutist. And he says that where their mistake was, even though he's not saying it here, he showed it later, what their mistake was is they, they were trying to reach the culture on their own terms with claims of the living and true God. Is everybody with me so far? Some of you look like you are straining. This is what Fuller Institute, uh, Theological Seminary was instituted for, why it came to be in order to have a more academic uh, structure to giving the gospel and to reaching a culture that was lost because they felt that it was the fundamental evangelicals in the mid-1940s were not doing the job. Okay. Yes. His name is McCain. Okay. Okay. Yeah, is that turned on? <laughs> oh, you're not done yet. <laughs> You would not get that from what I just read you because I, I, I read 50 pages because I know what's coming next. That's why I'm telling you that when you just get this bit of information, you, you would not glean from it that he is not wholeheartedly for this group that removed themselves from the mainstream, started Fuller uh, Theological Seminary, and started trying to be more academic more sophisticated in their spiritual uh, dealings with the culture and with unbelievers. So I'm, that's incorrect? I mean, the, there's a sentence in there that it says that the leaders have abandoned the chance of an absolute and yeah, what, what, and now I'll, I'll explain it to you now because it'll, it'll come forth in, the next, in a few paragraphs. No, no, but I, I want to prepare you for it so you'll see it even more when, when, it, when we get to it. What he's saying is when they abandoned uh, the, the norm, which is just, uh, his idea is essentially this. The Bible is the Word of God. You don't explain it. You give it to people. They can either accept it or reject it, and that's it. Well, these people are saying, no, what we're going to do is use evidence, examples and so forth, and use it on a higher uh, elevated plane to reach these people. And he's saying when they do that, then they're essentially lowering their self down to the world standards when they do that. In other words, he's, what, what we're going to see is anybody that goes to anything outside the Bible to explain or give evidence or any of those type of things, then they have lowered the standard to the world's uh, modus operandi, and it's, he's, not, he's not a happy camper about it. That's a, I, that's a lot so far just in that. But you're going to see that. Now that i said it, you can look for this as he's going forth. And what we're going to see, because when I was dealing with, these, uh, with this unbeliever, 
we have to recognize because, uh, in fact, I gave the young people not long, just what was a week or so ago, five areas where you can, the evidence that the Bible is what it says it is. So it's basing it on evidence. And what we're going to see is he's saying, no, you don't go to evidence. That's going outside the realm and putting something other than God's authority in, in place. You're you going to the world's authority then. Let me just keep going and that will, that will come, uh, become more evident. It's not oversimplifying things to say that all methodologies of apologetics, remember what apologetics is, it's essentially defending the faith, can be classified in one of two groups. Now, anytime you defend the Bible, you're going to be in one of these two groups. The first includes those who accept the Scriptures as sole authority consistently. In other words, when you go to talk to people about the Bible, you're going to have some that already accept the Bible as the Word of God. And you're going to deal with them in a certain way, but there's going to be others who don't accept the Bible as the Word of God, and then you're going to have to be in a different mode. So it includes those who... The other includes all those who substitute something other than the Bible as the ultimate authority. The latter may appeal to authorities such as logic. At any rate, it all boils one language. The final two and you have to go to the highest authority. The Bible is the highest authority. And if you go to the truth of the Bible, so we should only use the Bible, not go to the other sources and they the Bible. This beam is uh, you stay using the beam. He would say, "Now you're raising our own. Take us and bring it in." No, you give him where, where do I go from here. That sounds. I remember what that is on. But until page 47, the apologetical methodology. All right, let me break down. I know. You know what biblicism is? Opinions about everything. It's no different. Any doctrine about something that you've already made in biblicism, meaning what he's meaning is only the presupposition means that he's going to go on this presupposition that this is God's word. If others don't, don't believe that, it's too bad for them, but they're not going to go anywhere else. So my presupposition that this is the word of God. And I'm going to explain it. Y'all got it? Okay. It's that the living God's authority ceases to be such a poor form of creepy validation arrived at through early human and to be you die you, you harm the authority of your person you you can't have it is as it's is making a culture back copy with this through a cognitive process where the society won't accept there is a must take place but he's saying any cognitive process but if you revalidate don't you validate things before you accept them this methodology, for what our author is given, is that the only existing and self-contained truth and self-insures outside of the Listen, just the thought would capture what I'm saying. The axiom is drawn, i.e., an overt testament sustainer. God used he or something. I and apologetic. I use the paracet by the body of certain that provisional windbag, but it says one you see that from faith? The Bible's authority that if Pericope said, I said, and this is by by reasoning. The Bible was like that. Verification, presupposition, divine authority, call this logic, assistance, completely added outside the Bible, charges, proving the Bible. It appears through this cognitive, let's hide the Bible, but then yours not on the internet. It's, provision. it's just a provision to one who would make this speak a lot. Tested or determined and are uh, when the prophetic process in your mind to try the way to see this would be in italics. Now, when someone receives information, they go through an automatic process in their mind to determine certain things about that information. Is it good or bad, helpful or harmful, true or false, useful or, or, uh, or useless? This is done on the basis of our own value system, norms, and standards, and the evidence supporting the information. Isn't that true? I'll give an example in just a minute. Sometimes the evidence can be so convincing 
that it can change what, previous, what we previously believed. It is not a matter of authority, but choice. You know what I'm saying? When we're talking about evidence, it's not a matter that, one, that, that the evidence is elevated above the Word of God. It's not a matter of authority. It is a matter of choice. And he doesn't like that idea, which I'll show you in a moment. Here, this shouldn't be, uh, should be in italics. I'm going on to make an example here. When one is persuaded to buy a new car, it is not because the salesman or the evidence he presented had authority over the buyer. It's because the buyer chose to buy the new car based on the facts that the salesman pointed out, like price, gas mileage, comfort, and style. Isn't that true? Did you ever go away after you bought a car thinking, well, man, that guy had authority over me? Brought out those facts, and I, I, I submitted to those facts. It's not, a, it's not an issue of authority. It's an issue of what facts, the evidence. He gives you evidence of what to buy. Okay, now this is real important, this part here. Whoa. Okay. <laughs> All I was trying to do is un- italicize it. There you go. Okay. When one is persuaded to believe the gospel, it is not because of the Christian, that would be the Christian that's giving him the gospel, or the evidence he presented. Presented. It's not because that, that either the Christian or, the, uh, or what he presented had authority over him. It is because the person chose to accept the biblical facts and because of the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit. You got that? Nobody believes the gospel until they hear some facts. They have to have some information. And then with that, they have to have the what we call common grace and efficacious grace. The Holy Spirit is the convicting ministry. This is very important for you to understand, and you need to jot these down. If you don't have them, you're going to wish you did someday because this is these have to do with the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit. John chapter 16, verse 7 through 11. Anybody know what that's about? Christ is telling his... Let's turn to it. I want you to see it. Matthew chapter... Excuse me, John chapter 16. Christ just told his disciples he is going away. Now, what I'm doing is substantiating the, the statement that I just made. I said the reason a person believes the gospel is because they choose to accept the facts that were given and because of the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, look at John chapter 16, verse 7. This is Christ telling his disciples that he's going away. And he says, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper, that is the Paraclete, shall not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Notice him, pronoun. The Holy Spirit is not a force, it's a person. It's a member of the Godhead. He said, I'm going to send him to you as soon as I go away. Verse 8. And he, when he comes, will convict Underline this, the world. Some translations say convince, some say convict. Will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Those three elements have to be part of the gospel. Sin, because a person has to know that they are a sinner and need salvation. Righteousness, which means they cannot get to God on their own righteousness. They have to have God's imputed righteousness that comes through faith. And then you have judgment, which is if they don't accept Christ's righteousness and they accept their own, then they are under judgment. The Holy Spirit convicts who? Who does it say? The world. It's not talking about this earthly globe. It's talking about the, those who inhabit planet Earth. And then he goes on to say, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, and concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer behold me, and concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. So what we're seeing here is when it comes to anyone believing the gospel, and I think this even applies to 
biblical truth as well, other doctrines. They have to have facts and they have to have the Holy Spirit to convict them that this indeed is the truth. And I am of the idea that if the facts are the facts of the Bible and can be corroborated with the evidence elsewhere, which I'll show you in a bit. All right, y'all got John 16, 7 through 11. Now turn to Matthew 16, 16. Anybody know what Matthew 16, 16 is about? has to do with Peter. It's right after Christ was asking him, who do they say I am? Matthew 16, 16. And he says, Matthew 16, 16. Christ was asking, who do the people say that I am? And they were saying, well, a teacher and a rabbi and so forth. And he said, well, who do you say that I am? And impulsive Peter pipes up. You know, Peter got in a lot of trouble. Peter did a lot of good things, too. He was the only one that got out of the boat and walked on the water. Now he's saying, what do you say I am? And Peter pipes up, and this is what he says, verse 16. And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Look verse 17, what Jesus said. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. That means son of Jonah, and Simon was uh, uh, the surname for uh, Peter. And he, well, actually, uh, then it says, Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. That's what I want you to underline. But my Father who is in heaven. In other words, the gospel comes along with a supernatural act. This time it's of the Father through the Holy Spirit convicts a person of it. In other words, he didn't come, on, come to that on his own. And we don't believe the gospel. Just because you believe a lot of facts about Jesus Christ does not mean you're saved. Historical facts. The only way that you are saved is when you take those facts, you understand them, and you believe them and, they, and you apply them to yourself and realize that you're a sinner, these facts say that Jesus Christ is the only way. And trusting Him will deliver you from the lake of fire. And it will also impart to you as a gift eternal life and God's own righteousness. But accepting that, it's a personal thing. Just not believing that Jesus did it. But believing it and accepting it and saying, hey, I want that. That's for me. And doing it. So that's another illustration. What I'm showing you here is the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit. And then now turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. Now you need to write this somewhere so you'll remember where these verses are. Remember, all the T's are together. That makes it nice. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 5. I don't know if I can start in verse 5. Uh, let's just start in verse, uh, well, it's verse 2. Paul is so, you know, he, his sentences are a mile long. Verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention to you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved of God, his choice of you. Verse 5 now, for our gospel did not come to you in word only. Need to underline that but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you uh, for your sake. So here we have the, whole, the, the, the gospel does not only come in word. When you give the gospel to someone, that's necessary. They have to have the accurate facts. But it also comes with the ministry, convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit, which is powerful. That's why I didn't rely on you. It relies on... On, on Christ, and even then they can reject it. So what I've done is substantiate my statement that when someone believes the gospel, 
from the Word of God and for evidence presented, it, it's because the person believed those facts and was convicted of them by the Holy Spirit. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm trying to go a little bit faster. I'm trying to get to a point, but I don't think I'm going to make it, but I'm going to tell you what the, what the bomb is anyway. No, Dr. It's not, excuse me, it wasn't Dr. McCain, it was McCune. Dr. McCune revealed his presuppositional and motivating idea behind his argument that the Bible does not need to be defended by evidence and it's, it's, it simply needs to be believed. That's what he's saying. You don't need evidence, you just need to believe it. Now, see if you can put the pieces together. Here it's going to be, right here. Clark and Carnell, these are just other theologians that doesn't agree with uh, Dr. McCann, uh, Cain, whatever. What was it again? McEwen. McEwen. Uh, Clark and Carnell would both have uh, been better advised, because they are saying evidence is a good thing, to follow their reformed theological instincts and call for sovereign supernatural grace, divine illumination to implant an intuitive certainty of Scripture's truthfulness as a sure basis for its divinely empowered faith. Do you understand what that's saying? How many of you understand what that's saying? Huh? Uh, endowed, excuse me. Uh, divinely endowed faith. Okay, you know what he's saying there? First of all, what is Reformed theolo theology? Calvinism. Okay? And he says that these two are, they would be better if they follow their Reformed. By the way, Clark and Carnell are Reformed theologists as well. But they're using evidence. Now just hold on. Golly, I'm, I'm down to the wire. I feel like I'm straining for the finish line, battling the time here. And he says they would be better to call for sovereign supernatural grace. Anytime you have sovereign and grace linked, even if it has supernatural between it, it's the eye and tulip. It's the irresistible grace that they're talking about. It's a false, reformed theological doctrine. And he says, but if they have the supernatural grace, and he says here, divine illumination, to implant an intuitive certainty of Scripture's truthfulness as a sure basis for divinely empowered faith. Now, the reason I have divinely excuse me, endowed faith is... The Reformed theologist, if you'll remember, says that God only chose certain ones for Christ to die for and some Christ did not die for. If you're one of the lucky ones, then you're elect. And if you're elect, then God will give you the faith to believe the gospel. In other words, you're regenerated before you ever believe. And so that is the divinely empowered faith. He's saying, you don't need evidence. All you have to do is be elect. All you have to do is get this divine, supernatural grace that God gives you. He'll give you the faith. You don't need the evidence. When I read this, I said, "Aha!" A truly biblical, a, a, a truly biblical apologetics method must knock out all props of self-help and every vestige of intellectual autonomy of the natural man, so that his only recourse is what? Sovereign grace of the loving God. By the way, sovereign grace, loving God, that's an uh, oxymoron. Who has revealed himself inerrantly in the self-accrediting Bible. So he's saying, don't worry. Knocking out the self-helps, the self-helps would be the evidence that we go to. Archaeological, prophetic, uh, scientific, the inner workings of the Bible itself, the inner... Uh, all right, I think this is going to be my... All right, this is where I'm making my conclusion here. Uh, Y'all have done, done pretty good. Y'all, uh, you've got a kind of a one of these looking on your face the whole time, but that isn't necessarily a bad thing. <laughs> okay, here's, my, here's what I'm saying. If no one is able to trust in the gospel unless God gives them the faith to do so, that is the divinely empowered faith. In other words, if, you, if he chose you to save, then he's going to, you're going to get the grace. It's forced on you whether you like it or not. So 
again, if no one's able to trust the gospel unless God gives them the faith to do so, then no amount of evidence would persuade anyone to believe the gospel. However, there are theologians who believe in giving evidence to validate the truthfulness of the Bible. So do you see why it's after all this that uh, it's so important that you stay on track in the truth like Joshua said, never varying to the left or the right. You're staying right on course. And the only way to do that is to continue to grow, to get that spiritual nourishment and not be deceived. Because if you get off a little bit and you start getting off on this Reformed theology out on this Calvinism deal, then you'll get to the point where this guy is saying, you don't need evidence. Evidence is a distraction. Evidence is elevating the evidence above God. And cognitive reason, you don't need that. All you need is to be elect. That's what he's saying. All you have to do is get the sovereign grace. And you don't need all this other stuff. I don't know if, I, if some of you are getting it or not. This is... He's not... I'm telling you what he's saying after... Nine hours of trying to figure it out. He's saying it in such philosophical terms, such flowery words that you uh uh-huh. But I know what he's saying. He's given it away by these key words, these buzzwords here. And what I'm saying, if, if nobody can understand the gospel anyway, unless God gives them the faith to believe it, well, of course, he doesn't believe in evidence. Why give evidence? You might as well be speaking in Chinese. They don't get it because they have to have the faith that God gives them because he chose them and he didn't choose the masses of humanity. And this is the loving thing to do and it gives him pleasure. Yes, I'm using sarcasm. I guess I'll... Y'all have a plate full, I guess. Now, but what, what now what we're fixing to do not now, but I mean next time. Let you chew on this for a while. Carnell and Pinnock is going to start showing why giving evidence is not a bad thing. That it's a good thing. See? Now, did you learn something that you didn't even know exists? Did you know that there was this tension that there are those who say anybody that gives evidence is suppressing the truth of the Bible and elevating the evidence above the authority of God and you all you need to do is just be elect. Just get that supernatural grace. You'll be in fine shape. You don't need all that hogwash worldly evidence. You need that divinely endowed faith. I guess if you know what Reformed theology is all about. Uh, the two guys that I mentor back here on Sundays that know all about this, they would just be eating this up. And this is the first time, I don't know when, when they're both not here. <laughs> they would be back there, you know, they'd be just, well, that's all right, they'll, they'll get it. <laughs> okay. So, evidence is fine. In fact, I encourage you to use the evidence of the Bible itself. And next time, you're going to get a breath of fresh air. See, it didn't, wasn't this kind of confining, just kind of stagnant, uh, kind of, um, yeah, it, I mean, it just, just use this. You can't do that. You can't use evidence and all this. Huh, it, because the whole creation itself is evidence. Everywhere you look, there is evidence. Yes. That uh, Calvinists a lot of times are sneaky about this because I didn't realize when I was with Calvinist-type situations that they, um, some of them don't even know it, but when you ask questions, they don't really like it. Now, I used to think it was because, <laughs> because they didn't know the answer, but maybe they would a lot of times say, you just don't have enough faith. Yeah. And that's why you're so asking so many questions, yeah. which I do. 
Yeah, well, Amen. you're going to find not only in Calvinism, Calvinists, but a lot of people don't like to be asked questions. Just like you said, they don't know the answer. And they don't <laughs> yeah. like to be asked questions they don't know the answer to. Right. But with, when, and when anyone says with regard to salvation, eternal life, that you don't have enough faith, what have I said so many times? Every one of you ought to be able to say it just as well as I do. It's not the quantity or the quality of faith. It's always the object of faith that has all the merit. Not, and it's not the smallest little grain of mustard seed faith in Jesus Christ eventuates in eternal life. So, Okay, well, I don't know whether I need to apologize or not for trotting this out. This, at least you ought to go out feeling pretty philosophical and sophisticated and I don't know, maybe it's just the opposite. Maybe you go out thinking, you know, I'm just dumb as a rock. I don't know. <laughs> That's the way I felt, but I was able to put the pieces together and, and figure, yes. McCune. McCune, I know it was out of the, uh, I believe, Detroit um, yeah, Baptist right. Seminary. Right. Yeah. Is that the Northern Baptist, that seminary? Uh, it's in Detroit. So, yeah, I would think. I just, I don't know where, you know, there's three or four branches of them. Besides. Maybe there's a northern Detroit. <laughs> but anyhow, it doesn't sound like the southern Baptist. No, probably not. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, but we're not going to get into seminaries. i got to close. <laughs> Maybe we'll get into them afterwards. But I, I need to. I'm already past time, and I, uh, I hope I didn't go too fast, but... Uh, this is important because when I was uh, giving this unbeliever all these great proofs, uh, one of them was prophecy. He informed me that he could prophesy. I said, really? He said, yeah. I, I, he said, I, I prophesied that uh, we would not I, uh, uh, invade Iran. Everybody's saying we were, and I said we didn't. And I said, well, first of all, the fat lady hadn't sung yet. And other than that... Um, that was a guess, and that's different. So everywhere I went, he had a smart of an answer, and this what ma- that's what made this so meaningful to me because I started wondering, should we even give evidence? And just about that time, I fall into this article that was all about it. Okay, let's close. Father, thank you for this time that we can think upon these deeper thoughts recognize that we want to do what's pleasing in your sight, do a right thing in the right way. And so we, we need to determine, is it right for us to give evidence when we give the, uh, the gospel and when we give biblical truth? As we go through these things, we pray that each one of us will make our own decision based on the evidence. We pray that you will help us to uh, use these things that we learn in order to contact other people and it not be a contest, but that we are as wise as serpents and gentle as doves. We pray it in Christ's name.